Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Welcome to Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. Today, my guest is an accomplished investor, author, business leader, and father, Larry Koshard. Welcome. Glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Chaz. It's great to be here. I call you an accomplished father as well, because I remember you giving me uh, <laughs> college advice for my twin daughters a while back. Well, having four children, that's, uh, that's a lot of experience. I have a lot of scars from investing, but yeah, also a lot of experience from uh, child rearing. You're a mentor in many ways. Well, let's start, Larry, with your background. Um, I think everybody's background is kind of interesting and in how they got to their position today. Tell me a little bit about how you got started in the business. Sure. You know, and I, I, what I would say, and I always give this advice to students that I've had over the years, because I have been a professor, is there's not one single path. And I think a lot of, you know, young students at the beginning of their career need to re remember that. So many are just kind of fixated on you know, going to Goldman Sachs and then going to a private equity firm. And it's, it's never that simple. And a lot of investors have had a really varied background. That includes me. Um, I've had multiple roles in finance, which I think has really helped in many fronts. Um, I've done corporate finance at a large corporation. Um, I've been at a large investment bank doing capital markets. I came back and got a PhD in economics and was a professor teaching finance classes. And then really segued into this world of institutional investing, um, having been a senior leader at the Virginia Retirement System. Uh, then Georgetown University, University of Virginia, and now more recently, Mechanic Capital Management. And each stop along the way really influenced my philosophy to investing. And really, I think, you know, and again, you make mistakes along the way, helps become a better investor over time. I couldn't agree more. And as I've often told many folks, I didn't learn much from any success. I learned probably anything I've learned through failures and things that, uh, Hopefully, I wouldn't repeat, you know, make a different mistake. Just don't make the same one. Yes. So now McKenna, um, who I would hope many of our listeners would know, McKenna is about a $20 billion, I think, pioneering outsourced chief investment officer business in Menlo Park. Yes, correct. Um, with other offices. But I'm curious how you think about your competitive positioning or how you think about the many other folks in the OSIO world. And you've got boutique firms like Colonel Callahan and Jim and Agility. You've got pension consultants like Mercer and Russell. You've got big financial institutions like Vanguard and State Street and BlackRock. How do you think about your competitive position versus folks? No, it's a really good question. You know, we started now 16 years ago and the founding team came out of Stanford Management Company Stanford has been one of the large, very successful investors across multiple asset classes. And you know, over time had you know, success you know, raising assets. But unlike some of the other outsourced CIO firms, we you know, have other clients in addition that are, don't just invest all our assets with us, but we're a part of their portfolio. And one of the things that I would say differentiates us really from the get-go have our own unique way of thinking about risk. Uh, but it's different than some of the other OCIO firms where yep. you know, you're, you're getting pieces and it's customized. And 
even though there might appear to be some advantage to that, we actually think our model where, you know, every client's treated the same, um, every client's getting our best ideas going to this one fund is a better way. And it's really what I, you know, we did at University of Virginia. It really emulates the internal process of managing an endowment portfolio at one of the large universities. Right. So without making any judgment to quality, it's kind of similar to Investor or Spider in that Yes, regard. yes. So well, that would be, I'd say, the one differentiator relative to some firms that is more of a, you know, they've either were consultants or it's more customized. It looks and feels much more like a large, you know, Ivy League quality uh, university endowment. Right. That's how I've always thought of it. But the OCIO world, as you know, is absolutely overcome with competition and new entrants and folks that are that have some play in it, whether it's wealth managers um, that have dipped their toe in it, whether it's pension consultants of all types, uh, whether it's pure play firms that are employee-owned. There are a lot of folks that are very small, um, independent employee-owned shops, as you know. What do you think is, if you were to hazard a guess as to the competitive landscape of the OCIO business, it hasn't consolidated uh, nearly as much as the wealth management business. Yeah. It seems that it's a bit impervious to some of those um, industry trade winds or headwinds. And I don't know whether maybe those pressures are coming and you feel that it's likely that some of the very big folks that I mentioned earlier are likely to take over greater and greater market share? Or do you think there is ample opportunity for the $5, $10, billion true independent? I mean, I, I do think there's ample opportunity because it really depends upon the strategy. You know, our strategy, which again, as I said, it's about $20 billion in size, is very much kind of in the middle of the fairway to a large, you know, university endowment. We feel very good about the strategies that we employ that we can do that. It doesn't really necessarily scale up to you know, multiples of that, $100 billion. It would be very different. And so somewhere in that sweet spot of say five to $30 billion, I think, you know, there's plenty of room for people that have had, you know, endowment university experience to apply their trade doing just what we do. Um, you can then scale beyond that, but it's a very different strategy. So I, it's just, there will be firms that do that and consolidate, but I think you end up with a different process, um, different strategy. I don't think a prospect um, who is considering, say, an SCI or a BlackRock um, or a State Street is your kind of prospect. Just as I don't think that would be an appropriate prospect for a, a verger or a discipline or some of the smaller yeah. uh, competitors, I think that clients start to self-select how important is it to be either customized or to be the, the Yale or the endowment model that you uh, talked of? How important is it for them to deal with the principals as opposed to senior yep. client service folks? Um, how important is it just to have size and how big a percentage of the portfolio do they want to be? Yeah, no, and I you know just getting back to that sweet spot, you know, and I'd say it's probably 10 to, to 30 billion. It's that sweet spot is on the high side you know, it's good to have some scale because you can just hire a team that is very capable, very experienced. So it's big enough to be able to do that, but it's, it's not too big. 
that the, you know, the, the ability to do very interesting strategies that may be size constrained is a limiting factor. So I, I really do feel that this is a, a, a real sweet spot. Well, I, my sense is that we're going to have a lot of change and movement in the OCIO business here in the years to come. I think there's been a lot of building um, in this uh, maybe last 10-ish or so years, and I think that we're going to have more competitive movement, more cooperation, perhaps some deal-making. We'll see. Yeah, no, I agree. You, um, as I think anybody who has followed your career a bit, um, they might know that you are an author of two books. One is Foundation and Endowment Investing, which I think is a very good primer for anybody in the field. The other is a book on hedge funds. Are you thinking of writing anymore? <laughs> um, when I have more time, I will certainly write, but I'm, I'm sort of knee deep in what I'm doing. I do write for you know, McKenna. I mean, I, I take a lot of pleasure in putting my thoughts down twice a year for our semi-annual letter for our overall portfolio. And then we put out a lot of other publications that I think, you know, that kind of, you know, your, your clarity of thought is helped by putting it down on paper. And uh, I'm showing my age by saying putting it down on paper. <laughs> uh, so, but I really do think there's, there's a value add to good writing. Uh, so it's really important to me. It's really important to, you know, the team members that we have. And, you know, we have, you know, quite a few good writers in on, on the team at, at McKenna. So, I continue to write, just not in, in book form, but God, I hope, hope to return to that. God forbid, Larry, do you start things the same way I do? Do you basically take loose leaf paper and a pen and scratch your ideas out? Yeah, there no, I stop. I mean, and some of those ideas come to me when I'm on a flight. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm on flights a lot. And yeah. so uh, I'd much prefer writing it down on a legal pad, the, yeah. the initial thoughts, than putting it on a, a laptop. Right but, you know, the interesting that the first book, as you said, the Foundation of Endowment Investing, the, the genesis of that was when I landed at Georgetown back in 2004, having come from a, a large public pension, which was a very good team. I learned a lot there, but this was a much smaller, you know, different style in terms of what, you know, kind of the risk tolerance of universities and, and the objectives of the universities. And the first thing I did was go around and talk to who are some of your best in class endowment CIOs. And so I did this informal survey. And, you know, at that point, you know, everyone had heard of David Swenson and Jack Meyer, who were, yep. you know, just legends, um, very successful, very different models. But, you know, I talked to about 20 different CIOs, all who had a little twist on the endowment model. I learned a lot. And that really sparked the idea of, why not profile some of these other CIOs that are not as familiar to people? And I think people could learn something from them. So, you know, whether it was Lori Hoagland, um, who had been at Stanford Management years ago, you know, or, or Bill Spitz, who was at Vanderbilt, Scott Malpass at Notre Dame. They're just, just a lot of great thought leaders, great investors, all with a slightly different spin on the endowment model. So that really was the genesis of that, that project. And uh, it's just that initial you know, survey that I did to help, help me get going at Georgetown. You know, it's one of the interesting points about what you just said about some of the standout endowment investors is that a number of them probably could have created great business successes if they would have commercialized their business. You know, whether it was just to the extent you have at McKenna um, and what we talked about with Stanford or um, 
much much more so. But yeah, I know you're right. But one of I mean one of the one of the people the interviewees, um, Alice Handy, um, who was at UVA, who left and founded Investor, who was again very successful, very good firm. So and it was you know again great to get her thoughts. She's a good friend of mine. I mean, no no doubt in my mind, Scott Notpass could have raised a lot of money. Oh, absolutely. Had a hell of a third party business. Paula Ballant at Bowdoin could have done yep. the same. Agreed. Let's go to the movement from, as you said, VRS, a big uh, public institution, to Georgetown and UVA. I mean, that were, were Georgetown and UVA very similar, or is there kind of any? No. So you, when you think about size, um, Georgetown about a billion, UVA around ten billion, and now again McKenna is a little bigger. Um, so different sizes, and you know, I will in a minute talk about my six core investment principles. Mm -hmm. But you know, one of the second principle is play to your strength. And you know, really try to understand. And I'm always, you know, what is that strength? What is our edge? And we're always looking for managers and really trying to understand and really then research what is their edge. Because you know, every firm is very good adept at you know arguing what their edge is or marketing, but really trying to figure out if there's truth in that. But just sort of when I look at those range of institutions, each size has a different advantage or edge. You know, Georgetown, small institution in terms of portfolio, which means you can take a little more concentration in bets. One of the challenges is you can't build as big a team. So you don't have quite the depth and breadth of being able to go out there and research ideas. But if you do find an interesting idea, it's much easier to concentrate in that. You know, Virginia retirement system, enormous team, very strong. But again, when you get to a certain size or certain strategies, you just can't employ. Right. So you have to really take advantage of what is their what is their edge, what is their strength. They did have a very strong reputation in the industry, especially within private equity. So really being able to go out there and grow the buyout portfolio in particular, which is more scalable, really play each other's strength. And they've, you know, they've been investing in buyout for now, you know, 25 years or more and have done extremely well. But really, you know, that led to one of my core principles, like understand what is your edge. And I've always thought like one of the edge that I don't have, and I don't think other investors do have, even though they think they may have, is, you know, timing the market. You know, we're, we're you know, strictly bottoms up. Um, in terms of our approach, finding ideas at the comp underlying company level, finding managers that have skill of trying to find those companies, that is, that is our strength, that is our edge, and partnering with managers for, you know, ideally, you know, close to 10 plus years yeah. um, that they can employ that. So that really is kind of a genesis of be, having been at different places and really de defining what is their edge is partly what's going to lead to your success at those different institutions. Yeah, part of what I hear you saying there is that you do fundamental research and you're, you're making what you hope is a very long-term bet on a group that you intrinsically trust and you do it a bit without regard for timing. Yes. In terms of it may actually be a relatively poor time in the market cycle or, or uh, other aspects of their strategy. That entry point, when you finally get to the uh, spot where you can, you're not as concerned as to whether or not that is a relatively good or a relatively poor entry point? And I, I couldn't agree more, which you know, is kind of then a kind of a precursor of my first core principle, which is be long-term investor. 
you know, everyone says they're a long-term investor, but when you have a market like today where the Dow's down 600 points uh, because of what Russia is doing in Ukraine and worries about the Fed and just really keeping your eye on the long-term, there's so many distractions in most investors, even though they say they're long-term, just get off track. Um, that's probably the, of all the core principles, the most important one. And everyone actually says that they're a long-term investor, but it's, it's hard to do it. Couldn't agree more. I think there are examples everywhere of folks that for whom long-term is a year or two at most. And oftentimes, isn't that um, in part due to the fact that um, leadership changes and you've got new people in the job or um, there's a change in reporting or there's a change in um, the investment philosophy and guidelines that all of a sudden now we need to make shifts or we've been working on an asset allocation shift for some time. We're gonna to have to do some significant rebalancing. So I'm sorry, we, you know, I'm sorry we just spent all that time you know, underwriting your process for the last three years, but you, know, you just kind of hit us at a bad inflection point. We're gonna to have to- yep. No, I mean, that's a great comment. I mean, just actually reflecting, I was not at UVA during the GFC, but I mean, without getting to names of people, you know, they, they actually performed quite well in terms of not panicking, despite the fact that they were relatively illiquid. And a lot of that was due to the fact that there was this very tenured person on the Vimco board, leader at UVA, who had been through multiple, you know, downside scenarios, not just in the markets, but just in being a leader. And, you know, then gave them the fortitude and conviction of staying the course and being a long-term investor. And I've seen so many institutions who just panic. And I remember actually an anecdote. I was at a, um, a private equity annual meeting back in March of 2009. So, you know, right near the market low. And I'm sitting next to uh, a colleague in the industry. Uh, and again, I won't give his name, but he shows me a note that he got from his, you know, chair of his investment committee that just basically said, I want to go to cash. Uh, <laughs> and a fortunately, and that is actually one of the values of having a less than perfectly liquid portfolio. He wasn't able to go to cash instantly. The market bounces back, not as quickly as it did in March of 2020, but bounces back and uh, then subsequently looked like a hero. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's there's just so many institutions that, again, think of themselves as long term investors and the very notion of when you invest in private investments, you have to be a long term investor because oh. you can't access the funds for years. But even those investors sometimes just panic. So. So anyway, yes, you're yeah. spot on. Yeah. yeah. So I think we've now covered two of your six core principles. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Know, know your edge. And, and stick to it and, and don't be drawn into business models or aspirations um, that others are doing that are not your edge and be long-term, be truly long-term, which in yep. your vernacular, your vernacular is really 10 year plus. It's 10 year plus. I always say 10 to 20 years. And that's, you know, should, could I say 30 years? Sure. But I just, I think 10 to 20 years is the right time frame. Right. So those are two. What are the other four? Sure. The next one is, is one that, um, you know, again, the academic side of me 
um, that got a PhD in economics where, you know, you, you kind of get drilled into you that most financial markets are very efficient. You know, most investors would dispute that because they're in the business because they think they can add alpha uh, net or their fees. But having the humility to just, you know, flat out say most markets are efficient and that really our job boils down to finding those strategies, those geographies, those markets where skill is an advantage and skill can actually exploit some market inefficiency. And really, ultimately, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to find opportunities where skill can be rewarded and spot that skill, but really focus our efforts on where there are inefficiencies that can be exploited. And so whether it's um, in the private markets where I do think you know, a lot of people think there's a liquidity risk premium investing in you know, private equity. And I think there's less of that. I think there's so much money that's going into private investments that I think the average private investment is not necessarily going to earn a, a spread over and above the public markets. But I do think those markets are inefficient from the standpoint of the way manager A can operate a company, turn around a company, um, spot a company. I think there are you know, inefficiencies that can be exploited privately. So that's one strategy. I think emerging markets, without a doubt, are less than perfectly efficient because you know, so much of the money is being invested from more macro standpoint meaning money comes into a country when they like what's going on and it goes out of the country when they don't like what's going on or that they're very trading oriented. So what we're always looking for in the public markets are managers that apply what I would call a private equity approach to investing in the public markets, meaning they really understand these companies. They can apply not necessarily hard activism, but what I would call maybe constructivism or friendly activism where they can be engaged with the management team. They don't even have to be on the board and they can help try to make that company better and be there with the management team for a long time. So it's just not a trade. They don't just go in, agitate to get the company sold and then, or, and then they, they get a realization. They're there. It's like a Warren Buffett approach. We're going to be there for the next, you know, five, 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, he's how long has he owned Seas Candy? That is exactly the approach of Tom Gaynor and the Markel team. No, exactly. exactly. I'm a huge fan of Tom's. He's, that's exactly what, what he does. And so even for you know, public equity where everyone says, oh, well, those markets are efficient. Why bother? I'm only going to focus on you know, private strategies. I'm just going to do everything indexing. I think if you don't have the ability to undersource and underwrite managers that can apply the strategy that I just articulated sort of this private equity approach to investing in public markets, then you should just index. But I do think there are opportunities even within the public market. So again, this, this one is try to understand that mar most markets are, are, are efficient, but focus your efforts where there are inefficiencies. And I guess the follow-up I would ask on that one is that when you are looking for skill and you're trying to discern skill from all the other factors. How often have you seen, or has it happened to you, being honest and vulnerable for a second, where you were fortunate enough to find 
at the right time and for the right period, a Renaissance or a Lone Pine or a Bain or a Blackstone Fund or Select Equity or wherever it was, in whatever asset class, yep. you were with them for a period of time and they were enough of the portfolio that they really led the way. How often do you think that some very fortunate picks of managers and significant allocations to said managers have really led the day versus a broader skill accounting and uh, batting percentage? I mean, that's actually a really good question. I would say it is somewhat skewed that, you know, when I reflect on some of the best managers, they have disproportionately added alpha over a long period of time. It's, it, is, it is fairly skewed um, in sort of a, a handful because they're really only a handful. And you're always, when you go into a manager, you're always you know, betting that they're going to be that next special manager yeah. and things don't always work out or the manager changes. I mean, as you, you know, kind of articulated, once it's become known that you know, a manager is outstanding, they could do one of two things. They could either stay really small, not accept any more money, keep the same strategy, or they can grow the business. They can yeah. grow beyond yeah. you know, the kind of being able to generate the same type of returns or add all these new strategies. Yeah. So they're no longer a PM, they're just sort of a CEO, they're managing the business. And so things change. And one of the things to get right there is to know when to get off the bus. Yeah. And we don't always get that right. Sometimes we stay too long. We try to get good at that, but it's that's also an art. Um, well, I don't know. Which do you think is more of a which do you think is more of an Achilles heel? Staying too long or leaving too quickly? Um, the, the mistake I have made, because I generally have stayed long. I, I rarely leave too quickly. Yeah. You know, we do a lot of work on the front end and we certainly will make mistakes or again, the manager changes his, his or her stripes. Yeah. But you know, I'd say the more common mistake is just staying too long. Yeah. What's our next principle? Okay, next one is, is more nuanced. And this one is one I've learned from experience, not necessarily the hard way. It's not like a, an overt mistake, but I call maintain everyone, you know, everyone in the investment business knows you want to diversify. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's you know, it's one of those free lunches. You can just reduce the level of risk and not reduce the level of return. But two comments there. One is you can certainly over-diversify. Because as I said before, you know, skill is scarce. And if you 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 have too much diversification, you are going to potentially diversify away your sources of alpha. And I think a lot of investors have recognized that. So that's not any great you know, insight, but that's something to be cognizant of. The second and more nuanced meaning behind balanced diversification is, I'd say one of the things I've learned over the years is you know, when we invest in private strategies, you know, we uh, and a lot of other investors as a result of the 08, 09, GFC, we we have a liquidity budgeting process or private commitment budgeting process, whereby we restrict the amount of new private commitments we make in any given year to a level that will allow us to have a steady state level of unfunded commitments to private investments and private investments 
that give us the flexibility to manage the portfolio through a downturn. So we don't overcommit to private investments. Yeah. And a lot of people, again, exercise that as part of their, their risk management process. But the, the realization is that if private commitments are a scarce and you're budgeting that, you know, not all private investments are kind of going to have the same impact on, on the portfolio. And so it's led me to want to skew the private investments more to the higher, you know, higher octane investments in the portfolio, you know, call it venture capital, buyout, and more, say, return generating real estate. And away from more of the diversifiers like private credit, certain real estate, because I'm just not getting compensated for having that unfunded commitment. And so what it means is if I want a diversifier in my portfolio, I want it to be public. If the market goes down 30%, I want a diversification is only important to me if I can access the cash and then right. go buy stuff that, that traded down in value. I can't do that with my private diversifying assets. So we have very few in the way of private diversifiers. It's more of the high octane part of the portfolio. So basically private assets are more your risk bucket. Yes, exactly. In other ways, yeah. And so that's what I mean by, you know, so core principle number four is maintain balanced diversification. That's kind of a nuanced view of what um, diversification is, making sure those diversifying assets are relatively more liquid. Yeah. Now, I think the over diversification um, weakness um, or symptom is, uh, that's a little, I don't want to say that that is um, kind of been a derivative of modern portfolio theory or modern institutional uh, allocation, but I do think it shows up a lot of places. Yeah. It really does, where, you know, we've got to have X percent to these nine or 15 buckets. Um, and, you know, one, there's the cost of managing the diverse portfolio and the number of managers in it. And then two, it's really your argument, which is where are you really getting your bang for your buck and where do you have more protection? Yeah, completely agree. All right, what's next? Okay, core principle number five, which again, every investor says is that maintain a value discipline. And part of that, it really just is, okay, you know, rebalance. You know, if, if equities have gone down, um, make sure you have the discipline to rebalance, you know, which is, you know, what we did March, 2020. Um, so starting in early March, which is again, a little early, it wasn't at the low through April, we you know, added risk assets. And then as the markets have rebounded, you know, basically doubled the S&P has off its low of March, 2020. Yeah. Um, we've been trimming ever since. And so maintaining that value discipline, no, knowing that we have no edge at trying to time the market. So that's, that's one. The second is, again, more nuanced. And that is when we invest with managers, even if they're growthier, meaning they're investing in technology companies or they're investing in growing companies, making sure that those managers have a valuation discipline. Mm. And so we have a bias towards growth. We have a bias to quality. But the way I look at that is that oftentimes fast growing companies, simple valuation heuristics, such as price to earnings, you know, yeah. price to book, just are really price to sales, you know, for companies that don't have earnings, 
yeah. are oftentimes just meaningless statistics if a company is growing so much. And you, so much money is invested as people that are momentum investors. So, so, so many of the company, growing companies, they do attract momentum money. But then it just attracts people also that just solely look at these simple valuation metrics. And so when we hire managers that can you know, invest in technology or invest in healthcare, invest in sectors where, again, getting back to that other core principle, which is go where markets are less efficient, mm -hmm. we think sectors that are harder to understand in terms of future growth are more inefficient. And trying to understand which of those companies, those companies that are you know going, that are momentum driven in a market like we saw last year or the year before, which of those companies that are really truly deserving of their valuations and actually may even be undervalued if they continue to grow, um, or which of those companies that are just truly it's just retail money that's you know pushing them up further and further. They're just momentum driven, and so that's where so we're naturally attracted to those strategies like technology or growth where we think skill can pay off and but they those managers have to have evaluation discipline you see that that's the irony which i'm sure is not lost on you and that you juxtapose valuation discipline with growth and you know a bias towards growth yeah and some um, investments in sectors where there are little or no earnings and as you say multiples are are either insane or irrelevant that you juxtapose those two and you actually are comfortable employing your valuation disciplines in that world and having a growth and quality bias. I think maybe the quality bias is, is the other very important part of this comment. It, it is important because they're even contrasting, um, you know, in instances where we do have managers that focus in more cyclical, you know, non-technology businesses, we look for managers that can kind of find and tease out that a company is actually a quality company that's not fully understood for what moats it has around it. And the fact that it's actually cash flows are more stable than the market is actually giving it credit for. So we're actually even within value for those managers that are looking for value within cyclicals, they're looking for quality within cyclicals, um, which is another subtle differentiator versus just buying, because I'm a firm believer um, that you know value over time, there are just so many opportunities to get stuck in value traps. Yeah, well, the question of course is how much time? Yeah, no, exactly. So many people that have thrown in the towel and, and you know, echoed value is dead and kind of Graham and Dodd value, it, it just, uh, it doesn't exist in that form anymore. Um, it's relative value, or at least there's duration um, and, and other measurements that need to be taken into account today. But hey, I hear you. We've been invested in a number of value-oriented uh, US equity, international equity-oriented businesses. And of course the issue is, how long a bad patch are you willing to suffer? Yeah. And I think you've been willing to suffer some reasonably long bad patches because you've underwritten what you thought was a really good team and you have a very long horizon. Yeah. Of course, it's harder in private equity. When we were a private equity firm, you know, all it would take would be a two to three year bad stretch. And that is a torpedo for private equity. Yeah, no, I agree. I do have to say so that's just sort of a qualifier for anyone that is more of a value, whether it's public 
private, I need to see some sort of catalyst. And that's where, again, that whether it's activism on the public side or whether it's you know private equity really you know turning the companies around, and I also need to make sure it has, has you know they're looking at balance sheets. Yeah, I, I think we've been in this low interest rate world for years, and there's been you know growing temptation to just you know apply leverage to generate returns, and you know just making sure that these companies that are more challenged that are attempting, there's an attempt to turn them around, that they have good balance sheets, that they can survive the path to the long-term. I'm with you. Final question. Would you want to be an economist this year? (laughs) Well, I think, yeah, this year, like every other year, I mean, everyone, it always seems like it's as bad as ever in terms of the macro economy. It just shows you how hard it is to predict, you know, is it going to be four rate increases, five rate increases, seven rate increases? When will they reduce the balance sheet? What will the impact be? I, I just don't think anyone can predict that. And, you know, I, we, and that's, again, this notion of let's stay focused on the long run. Yeah. Let's kind of control what we think we can control, finding managers that have skill, that can, can employ their talents in inefficient you know, strategies, whether it's investing in technology companies, public or private, whether it's investing in other geographies like emerging markets, whether it's activism. And so let's just focus on that, maintaining a constant level of risk in the portfolio yeah. and try to manage the portfolio to a 60-40 stock bond level of risk, meaning drawdown risk or, or what we call yeah. market risk. Keep the liquidity risk in the, in the portfolio within the guardrails both in terms of unfunded commitments to privates, as well as the liquidity of the rest of the portfolio. And let's just control that. And then uh, constantly look for new managers, get rid of old managers that have gotten too big and stick to our knitting. Couldn't agree more. And I mean, how great would it be if everybody were measured and those doing the measuring were truly multi, multi long-term rolling year periods? And get rid of these quarterly and, and annual snapshots, which, you know, lots of those photos tell a distorted um, and imperfect story. You know, I love to see five plus year rolling results. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you look at all this. I mean, again, what we try to do is, you know, emulate the best and breed endowments. And, you know, the top endowments of all had very low attrition rate at the CIO level. You, you mentioned Scott Malpass. He yeah. was there, you know, for you know over 30 years. And you know, David Swenson was the poster child for yeah. you know great thought leader, very successful, not only investment thinker, but also leader, team builder, yeah. you know, yeah. culture, culture creator. And you know, trying to maintain that culture over a long time horizon, sticking to certain principles. And everyone's different. You know, we have what we do, we think we do well. And, you know, others might be able to invest in, you know, quantitative strategies or commodity strategies, which we, we don't think we have a skill at underwriting, but, you know, others, others might. So everyone has their own, but just sticking to that strategy for, for a long period of time. And so that actually is a good segue into my final core principle <laughs> which is, you know, I mentioned a couple of people. And our last one is that people matter. You know, we spend, in addition to what I've talked about before, you know, you're trying to find inefficiencies that can be exploited, 
we spent a lot of time underwriting people. You know, the, uh, you, the, you really can be surprised oh. by people, whether they're people that you work with on your team or the partners that we want to partner with, external partners, managers for the next 10, 20 years. And, you know, doing the uh, initial underwriting and then just ongoing underwriting um, to make sure they have a passion, a certain set of ethics, alignment of interest with us, and just make sure that stays constant. Um, we spend a lot of time on that. Couldn't agree more. That's what we're underwriting. But you know what the interesting question is about that? And I've started to think about it, which is, you know, this whole leader of this generation of baby boomers, of which we are two, that have been such charismatic and noteworthy and capable leaders. And some of the folks that then have come up under them and many of the institutions we've talked about, who is coming in their place? Who is following in their footsteps? I, I worry a little bit that in this increasingly automated, digitized world, that we won't have the same succession train over the next 20 or 30 years of great leaders that we've seen uh, in the last 20 or 30 years of our industry? I think it'll be more challenging. I mean, it's something as simple as, you know, one of the things that we learned from the pandemic is that we can work remotely. We're doing this interview over, you know, Zoom. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. can get, there's certain efficiencies that are, have been created. But with that said, you need to have a certain in-office culture that can develop that in terms of training that next generation, as you said, you know, just them kind of soaking in. I, I mean, I remember going back early in my career and, you know, I was a, you know, first year analyst at DuPont and doing in their corporate finance. And it was a Friday late afternoon and my boss's boss ran into my office. They say, Hey, can you help us out over the weekend? I say, sure. And I ended up being chosen as the junior most analyst to, end up working on the merger of DuPont and, and Conoco, which was the largest right. you know, the oil deal ever having transacted prior to that. Right. And you know, it was only because I was in the office. And you yeah. know, that, that opportunity, and those are opportunities exist all the time. And I learned, I learned a lot from that. It you know, really shaped, you know, shaped me in many respects. Um, so I, I do think this a hybrid approach, which, which we're, we've adopted, where we have both efficiencies from home, also allows us to work because we travel a lot, seeing managers, seeing clients, and it allows us to be you know, kind of involved in the office on Zoom while we're traveling. But then also have making sure people come through the office and get just, you know, learn all the best practices and you know, learn the culture. And so I, I do think there's could be something lost with that. With that said, I, you know, we have, I mean, the talent that I've seen, whether it's a McKenna or other endowments, it's remarkable today. It's, I would say it's better today than what it would have been say 20 years ago. Um, there's, there's an amazing talent that has migrated into both the endowment world as well as our world, which is the you know, outsourced CIO world, which is looking to imitate what endowments do. So I, I think there is a lot of talent. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad for our children's sake, and hopefully that they'll be able to continue to go into work and learn from folks like you. Why don't we leave it at that? Because I know we could go on. Um, it's always a pleasure, Larry. Well, and thanks so much, Chaz.
No, I, I appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you in person before too long. Absolutely. I would love to come up to Philadelphia. One of my favorite cities. Okay. Thanks, Larry. Okay, bye-bye.